Hi, this is Randy Brecker on I don't know how many records, but from everyone from Blood, Sweat, and Tears to Frank Sinatra to Jaco Pistorius. And this is Follow Your Dream, a great podcast by Robert Miller. So check it out. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Fred Lipsius, the extraordinary saxophonist and arranger for Blood, Sweat and Tears, one of my favorite bands of all time. They really were the first and the best to incorporate a horn section into rock music. Fred is a three-time Grammy winner. He's got nine gold records. He was the arranger for Spinning Wheel, Heidi Ho, and You Made Me So Very Happy, three of Blood, Sweat, and Tears' biggest hits. And he's performed after that with artists like Simon and Garfunkel, Janis Joplin, Thelonious Monk, and many more. And he's got a new album called Facets of Love. We'll talk about all of this. And as you know, in the middle of every episode with my musician guests, I like to do what I call a song fest. I've asked Fred to give me a handful of his best works. We'll play a little bit. We'll talk about them. You'll get the backstories. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know that I like to feature a song of mine in every episode, underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make it relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, my featured song is Miles Behind. It's a song that I wrote for my first album in 1994 of the same name. Why did I choose this? All right, well, follow this. This track features the great Randy Brecker on trumpet. And Randy was one of the original members of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, along with my guest. So, Fred Lipsius, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Good afternoon. Hello, everybody. Listen, it's a great pleasure to have you on. You know, I have had now with you four original members of Blood, Sweat, and Tears in this podcast. I'm getting close to getting everybody. I started out with Steve Katz, who was on a, right towards the beginning. And then I had Jim Fielder, the bass player, who was one of my great inspirations when I was growing up. Then I had Randy Brecker and now Fred Lipsius. Okay, I got to get the rest of you guys on here. Well, just keep in mind that two of them passed a couple of years ago. That's just a little complication. Well, the remaining guys. Okay. Well, listen, it was the most fabulous band, in my opinion. You know, I come from a background that was rock and jazz. Nothing ever approached Blood, Sweat, and Tears before that. Tell me about the beginnings of that band, because you were there right at the beginning. You were there with Al Cooper and company. Tell me about your recollections of putting that together and getting started. Well, I, I was called by one of the guys in the rhythm section. There was no bs and until a, a month or two after I joined the band in 67. And um, the story I heard, the rhythm section 
were down in uh, Greenwich Village, New York City. And this lady out of the 8 million people that live in New York City was a waitress and she overheard them speaking. She was their waitress. They were at a restaurant and uh, they were looking for someone to help Al Cooper, who was, I don't really consider that we had a, a leader in the band ever, but supposedly he had the record deal possibility with Clive Davis. He had mentioned this idea for horns. I don't know the original idea. Al told me it was his idea to have horns. And anybody can have an idea, but it's what you write, what you arrange. And, you know, the band could have fallen apart or been great with the right arranger, you know. So anyway, she overheard them speaking about forming this band and looking for a, a horn player to help Al Cooper with the arrangements and also be the leader of the horn section. There were no horns yet. So I was on the phone with one of the guys and uh, within a half hour after he called the other guys after we spoke, he said, you're in. <laughs> Hold on. You mean to say that the waitress was the one that got you in the band? She mentioned Fred Lipsius. She said, do you know Freddie Lipsius? To, like I said, I had 8 million people in New York City <laughs> sitting at a table. And uh, Bobby Columbia, uh, who I had played a session with when we were 15 and 14, he being a year younger than me. I originally played with his brother shortly before that at a friend's house in the Bronx. and. Um, Jules Columbia, who managed Thelonious Monk, and he played trumpet a little like Miles Davis. He didn't have the chops, but he was a very nice man, about 10 or 15 years older than Bobby and I. Bobby also had another brother a year younger than Jules that also, I think, was a manager for Monk. Anyway, so Jules told his brother Bobby about me, and we played together. We hadn't seen each other for about eight years. He's sitting at the table in the rhythm section before BS&T had a name. And he said, Fred Lipsius, you know, because this lady mentioned my name. He says, I don't know what he said. Is he playing jazz? Is he around? Anyway, he called me and we spoke for about a half hour and he was telling me about the underground rock scene, not the ones that are selling millions of records, but like Cooper and Steve Katz were in the uh, Blues Project. The right? Blues Project. They sold, I think, about 100,000 on the East and West Coast. It was an underground, you know, group. Uh, back people, and um, I knew nothing about this. I was basically a jazz musician since I was a kid, you know. So he spoke, he, he mentioned that, you know, there could be a lot of money in this. He wasn't making a lot of money yet, but he had played with Odetta, this is Bobby, and a couple other people. He was the drummer for BS&T, for anybody that doesn't know. Yeah, he, he owns the band now. He's owned it for a long time. As far as I know, maybe the last 30 years, I don't know. Uh, I don't really care one way or the other. Anyway, so we spoke and he just mentioned a couple of things to me. He said, we're forming a horn band, looking for someone to write the arrangements. And you can write anything you want, whatever that meant. There was a lot of freedom. And that, not just for me, for any of the arrangers in the band. And uh, anyway, so I said, I wasn't doing anything at the time. And um, I was open for it, not knowing what the music would be. None of us really knew what the music would be, other than maybe Al Cooper, who wrote some of the tunes. So he says, let me call the guys and uh, mention that I spoke to you. He calls me back in five minutes. I thought he was going to call me back in two or three days. And he says, you're in. You know, I'm going, wow. Okay. He must have said something good about me. And so we did a rehearsal because Al Cooper had this uh, concert at the, it was the Fillmore East. I think it was the old Village Theater originally in New York City in the village. And we were one of the three of her opening acts, that group uh, that had the tune Time 
of the the Chambers brothers. Chambers brothers. They, they were the big kid. So we were one of three groups. I made two hundred dollars. Each of us made two hundred dollars for twenty minutes playing. What did you play? You didn't have any tunes at that point, did you? Well, what happened was um, I made this rehearsal, but when Bobby called me, they gave me a demo that they had made, the rhythm section had made, I'm guessing, a, a month or two before, somewhere within that period. They had played once at the Cafe of Go-Go to raise money so Al Cooper could go over to Europe because he wanted to try his hand at being a producer, and they didn't sell very much over there. So the guys in the rhythm section said, after they played that night at the Cafe Gogo, they said, Al, this sounds pretty good. Why don't we form a band, you know? I wasn't there, so this is just kind of the basic idea. So he stayed. He didn't go to Europe or England. And uh, they made a demo using two trumpet players playing two of the tunes off the first album, My Days Are Numbered. Then I can't quit her. I can't quit her. She got a hold on me. She got a hand on my soul. I can't quit her. Cause I see your face everywhere I go. In the city streets, in the country field. In the back of my mind, I know it can't be real. For a woman to possess all the tenderness she had. There was another tune also called I Can Fly or I Can't Fly, something. Uh, shuffle tune, which I thought was great. It's not on the first album. And so they gave me the, that demo to listen to. I learned three or four tunes. I don't know if they got music also. Uh, within a day or two, and then they had a rehearsal down at the, um, above the Cafe Ogogo, I don't know if it's directly above, was the Derrick Theater on the second or third floor. It held a couple hundred people, big stage. So I met everybody at uh, Steve Katz's house, Jimmy Fielder. He was the youngest one. He was 19. We were all about 24, 25, 23. And they were very nice to me. We went to the rehearsal. I remember coming up in the elevator and Al Cooper, when, when the door opened, we were in this theater and Al Cooper was way far away on the bandstand, on the uh, stage. Um, I should say where they show the, the screen, you know, for the movie. And he's playing a screaming organ thing. He had just written this tune, House in the Country. No need to worry, folks in a hurry. Leave them behind you. No one can find you. House in the country. House in the country. Which is a very creative tune, but it was so loud, I was not used to ever hearing anything that loud. And the inner part of me was saying, Fred, what are you doing here? Get out of here. Take the elevator. This is not jazz. This is rock and roll, baby. I didn't know. I mean, I played rock and roll when I was a kid playing tenor a little bit. Basically jazz since I was nine years old, listening to Benny Goodman and whatever. So that scared me a little bit. He, was, he didn't say hello to me from, from the stage. We're like 40, 50, feet, 100 feet away. And he knew Steve Katz from the blues. And he said, hey, Steve, listen to this new tune I just wrote. I'm going, God, 
It's so loud. This is without people. Anyway, I played my alto, and supposedly I became Al Cooper's favorite musician other than Hank Crawford on alto for years. Wow. Michael Brecker came around, and then Michael was God, and Fred didn't care anymore for, for Al Cooper. But I mean, the way you're describing it, it just kind of morphed together. Well, you know, there was no real big plan that was in effect here. It just kind of happened. And listen, the first album was a magnificent album. Tell me about that cover, because for anybody that doesn't remember the cover, it was all of you sitting there with these little kids that had your faces on your knees. It was just a crazy, crazy cover. Child is father to the man. How did that come about? We went over to CBS where they take pictures, you know, CBS Records Division. And uh, originally, there was another picture that you might see somewhere. Everybody's dressed very weird. I think Randy Brecker was in a safari outfit with a hat on. <laughs> Cooper's wearing, I, I can't even explain it, just some weird stuff. And uh, it's just funny, but that one didn't work. Whatever, I wasn't in charge of that. But I remember being in the studio there and in this photographer's little office, besides the big room where we took the pictures, there was a picture, this is what I remember, of these little kids, not with a, a band, but they, these were all actors. You're all little kids, you know, nine, 10 year old kids, little cute kids that probably made some money as actors, their parents got them into it. So someone came up with the idea to do that. I don't know if it was Cooper, I know I had seen it. I'm sure I didn't mention it to anybody about a new album cover or whatever. Because Cooper is very creative with these crazy ideas, you know, besides his music. So that's, they sat on our lap and that was that, you know. And they just kept our heads for their... For the, for the little kids, that's right. Yeah. It was so distinct. It was so memorable. And you're right, it was so creative because nothing like that existed at the time. And the music, of course, was just fantastic on that album. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. In 1994, I recorded my first album called Miles Behind. It features world-class guest musicians like Randy Brecker of Blood, Sweat and Tears, Anton Figg of The David Letterman Show, Al Foster from Miles Davis's band, and Tim Reese from The Rolling Stones. I'm excited to say that this album has just been released on the internet for the first time. The 10 tracks include originals like Child's Play. Plus reimagined covers of Jimi Hendrix's Fire. You don't care for me. I don't care about that. You got a new fool. Huh. I like it like that. I have only one burning desire. Let me stand next to your fire. Let me stand. And Chick Corea's Sea Journey.
I'm very proud of this album. It's crossover jazz that's been called hip, tight, and edgy. I think that captures it. Miles Behind can be streamed on Spotify, Apple, and all the other streaming platforms. As always, I want to thank you all for listening to this podcast and to my music, and keep on rocking. And you know what? I want to get into the Songfest portion because I want people to hear the stuff that you did with Blood, Sweat, and Tears. So the first thing that we're playing right now underneath our voices is Spinning Wheel, which you arranged. Magnificent song. Tell me about your recollections on that. Well, I was over at Bobby Columbia's house. Uh, Jim Garcia, who produced the album, was there. You know, he produced, uh, was the manager for Chicago for years. And um, Jim, my memory is Jim was fooling around a little bit. He's not a piano player and the piano at Bobby's apartment. It was his mother's house in the Bronx. And uh, he was just playing a couple little things. Bop, 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 you know, a couple chords or something and I asked them to leave so I could write the arrangement and I wrote the arrangement one afternoon I'm self-taught arranger I wrote one big band arrangement going to Berkeley College of Music in uh, 61 for half a year that I attended and that was it other than that I'm totally self-taught and also as a piano player I'm totally self-taught so I'm usually very slow it might take me a week or two or three to write an arrangement but this came to me very quickly. And um, I'm backtracking for a minute when David Clayton Thomas joined the band after Cooper left for the second BS&T album called Blood, Sweat, and Tears. We had a rehearsal after he auditioned the night before, the day before. Uh, next day, we had a rehearsal at the Cafe Ogogo. I was the first one in the band to be there. And, Cooper, and um, David Clayton Thomas came there too. Takes out his guitar. No one knew he played guitar. And uh, he starts to play spinning wheel. And I don't have perfect pitch, like a great ear, but there was a piano there. And I recognized the chords somewhat. I can pick it up. It was kind of a repetitious boom. Right. And um, I started to play these voicings as a jazz arranger. It wasn't the basic rock and roll E7 chord with the E, G sharp, B, D, those notes in whatever configuration. I put the sharp nine chord in that note, which is a G natural. And for the E7 chord, the next chord was A7. I put the 13. Right. So I added nothing special as a jazz arranger, but I was probably one of the first other than Hendrix. And one other tune in rock and roll, the Jersey Boys. I love you, baby. Four Seasons, you mean? There's a chord there that's a sharp nine. They were the only ones, I think, to do that. So that's what happened. So I wrote the arrangement. 
in a short time. But when I was with David, some of the voicings I played right off the bat with him, accompanying him before anybody showed up, is what I used. For example, on the second chorus, when he's singing, um, doo, 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 I forget the words, it's one, doo, and I'm playing, I'm imitating a drum beat, which is boom, doom, shh, boom, doom, shh, that shh, the, the two and four beat, one, two, three, four, one, two, so I the horns, boom, 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 chord, boom, boom, chord, boom, boom, doo, doo. Someone is waiting just for you. Spinning wheels, spinning true. Drop all your trouble. Well, look, it was a very innovative arrangement that you put together. Nothing had been out like that previously. And then you, you replicated this skill on several others. Let's go to the next one, Heidi Ho. Tell us about that one, not just the details of the music, but, you know, how that thing became such a big hit. Well, I, I can't say how it became a, it's people buying it or not buying it, but it was a Carol King tune that we picked. And Bobby, Colombian Steve used to be good, like A&R people, producer type people, or for the future they became that. And uh, so we had meetings and uh, the arrangers, Dick Halligan, myself, after Cooper left, uh, some of the other guys in the band came, but I would raise my hand, or Dave would raise my hand after Bobby or Steve played a tune they thought would be good for the band, you know? And um, I don't remember the meeting. We only had a few meetings like that. And I was doing Heidi Ho. And it was a Carol King tune. It was, uh, from what I remember, it was on an album that she did with her husband, ex-husband, Jerry Goffin. And it wasn't a big hit, or else we probably wouldn't have done it at all if it was a number one, you know, we're not going to compete. Anyway, so I, I wrote the arrangement, and to me, I, I used some very simple chords, which as a jazz musician, knowing thousands of licks, having listened to Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk and everybody, I know millions of licks, you know, on saxophone and piano. So I wrote some of the horn parts just had triads, like a C triad at the beginning is a C chord to an F chord. Ba, 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 C to an F chord. And in the middle, when there's a harmonica solo, I just played, I was thinking of uh, Ellington. They go, ba, 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 ba. It's just horns playing C, F, F, triads. And I thought, gee, this might sound corny because I don't usually write just triads, but it sounded perfect over the harmonica solo. And um, the, the interesting thing on that tune was um, on the end, we had a chorus 
No, I think it was a, a New York City, either high school or junior high school chorus. I forget the name of it. And anyway, the conductor, there were like 30 to 50 kids. I think they were all black. I don't remember. I don't know if it mattered. I, but anyway, that was sort of a surprise. I, I didn't know that was going to be in the arrangements. You know, and someone, the producer must have gotten that together. So they came into the studio and they sang. The guy was conducting. And then at the last minute, as a nice, very gracious gesture, he said, Fred, you wrote the arrangement. You want to conduct the kids. I've never done that in my life. <laughs> I conducted them. I mean, it was they're following in time to the track anyway. Right. And uh, I just conducted them basically in the last chord with it. So that was a nice gift. It was a nice touch for sure, that chorus that came in at the end of that song. All right, let's go to the next one. This is another one of your big hits. You've made me so very happy. I chose you for the one. Now we're having so much fun. You treated me so kind. I'm about to lose my mind. You made me so very happy. I'm so glad you came into my life. Tell me about that one. Well, I'll say it to begin with, uh, I, I didn't measure it, but I probably wrote, Al Cooper wrote most of the arrangement. I might have written a fifth of it, you know. I used to sit down at the piano in the village with Al Cooper, sit on the piano seat with him. He'd play, and he had a unique style of playing. And I don't know if he could write music so much, but I always come from like the schlep, you know, the, the apprentice there, you know, and I would happily doing it. And he would play something. I say, I'd stop him as he's playing. He's playing it to him. And I say, Al, that would be really nice. The way you played that E minor chord, you played a, a G and an F sharp together. That would be really nice for trumpets or flugels. So I said, what did I play? I said, you did something like this. And he went back and played it. And I wrote it down before he forgot. So most of the arrangement on Very Happy was him. One of the parts that I had, the three sections, really. On the second chorus, uh, second verse, the others were untrue. I'm not a singer. So, you know, I did something that was hardly ever done in rock and roll. I had Lou Soloff, jazz trumpet player, play behind uh, the singer, behind David Clayton Thomas. The others were untrue, but when it came to loving you. Like, you know, Billy Holiday and all the great singers, they'd have a, a trombone, a trumpet, a saxophone playing, improvising when they were singing, like background behind them either getting in the way or whatever. That was part of the style back in the 40s or whatever. So I had him play. Of course, we kept it soft and David. And he improvised something behind him. I also had the horns playing a very pretty with the other horns, very gentle, uh, to make it a little sexier or whatever, just warm. And then the part where he sings for the first time, you made me so. The horns play. You made me so very happy. I'm so glad you came into my life. 
It's a very catchy, it's almost a melody. You name me, but they got that part. So I had them play on flugel horns. And on the ending, uh, where he sings at the end, you uh, name me, uh, there's some various chords there. And I, Al Cooper left that space for me to fill in. And I play. I had the part where the horns go, bah, 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 bah. you know, they build up. So that was pretty much it. The, uh, the last thing was on the ending, I'm playing keyboard, piano, some funky kind of instrument they had in those days. And uh, Dick Helling played full organ, but also I used the horns, the trumpets, uh, the trombone and two uh, trumpets playing in mutes. And they played a chord, like it's just like a G chord to a C major seven chord, every measure, two, three, four. It's a gentle sound. But the only other time I ever heard anybody do that, where I probably copied the idea on Laura Nero's first album, I forgot her arranger is very good. He used some muted trumpets on something. So, you know, you pick up these ideas and use them in different ways. Right. Well, look, as I said, you set a standard in that time in music and rock and roll. You guys advanced the art form tremendously in Blood, Sweat and Tears. I give you so much credit for that. No, there were others that followed in your footsteps, but I don't think anybody ever reached the same level as Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Let's go to your new album, Facets of Love. And I've got two tracks that I'm going to play a little bit from there. First, you did a cover of a Lennon McCartney tune, And I Love Her. about that well i just listened to it yesterday uh someone reacting to it from england and it's probably one of the most beautiful i mean there's hundreds as you know as a jazz musician it's hundreds to a thousand beautiful melodies written i'm in the mood for love tenderly all the autumn leaves you know it goes on and on you all who's to say which is better the beatles are probably the, the greatest rock group ever from my point of view uh, I wasn't a huge follower, but I'm just saying what uh, McCartney wrote, if he, if he was the writer, it's one of the most beautiful tunes. And I, what I noticed when I played it, when I was thinking about doing this tune, I don't know, I have a whole bunch of tunes I used to play at the nursing homes, hundreds of tunes. I just went through my book and picked one of the ballads. And I just thought, I listened to the way they did it. And of course, I'm not comparing. They had a multi-hit you know, millions, they sold millions. But it's got, for me, as a musician, it's got a corny beat to it. You know, like a little Mexican-Spanish beat, you know, with a little claves, and we've heard it a million times, you know? You know what's interesting also about that song? McCartney has told the story about how when he was uh, recording it, it was missing something. 
And all of a sudden, he turned to George Harrison, I think, and he said, come up with something for the beginning. And George came up with that little lick, da-da-da-da, which made the song, okay? Sometimes that's what happens. There's a lot of depth just in those few notes. Yep. With the chords that, 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 with the chord that it happens to fit with. And I used it in my version. But what I noticed musically for any musician listening, and I really doubt if Paul ever even thought about it, but just was in love and wrote this beautiful, it's almost like haiku. It's so simple. It's so simple. You know? But the melody, the first chord is a minor chord. So he goes up the scale, one, two, three. Ba da da, right? Ba da da, dee da da, da 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 da, is on another chord. So it's one, two, three, one, two, three, you know, a minor three. Then da da da. So it's on the next chord, it's two, one, three. <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? I understand exactly what you're saying. It's so simple. It's so simple. And yet it works. Now, what I did was I hadn't heard it in years. I listened to it and I said, gee, the guitar part, he's just playing the chord, the triad, that's all. It's very simple. Nothing wrong with that. It's perfect. But I, as a jazz musician, if I'm going to play this, and I didn't know until I played on the piano first, and then I overdubbed my alto, I came up with chords that had the extensions, the ninth, eleventh, thirteenth, whatever, over that. Not to be jazzy, just to make it beautiful. And to be quite honest, I love my version as much as I love theirs. I think it's deeper than, than his. I know it sounds very egotistical. I'm not going to sell a million on this at all. I'm just saying, my engineer, he said, it's very, very deep, What you, the sound of it. It's, very, uh, it's as much a love song or even as deep. I know it sounds cocky, but that's the way I feel. I'm sure that it's, uh, it's going to be taken as a beautiful song and a beautiful arrangement because that's what you do. All right, last thing. You took a classic in the jazz canon, Cherokee, which has got that world speed record kind of melody to it. Tell me about that one. Well, also, on, on this whole album, Facets of Love, I noticed after I wrote it, all the tunes, I mean, after I recorded, all the tunes, I hadn't thought about it, are about love. Cherokee, I'm looking up in my fake book, uh, Hal Leonard songbook, you know, famous tunes, and it's about an Indian maiden, a love song. I didn't know that, because I'm not into lyric that much, you know, generally speaking. And all the tunes that I recorded, you know, tenderly, it goes on, on. They're all love songs. So the interesting thing about Cherokee, I love to play the tenor version, but that's the first time I've ever recorded the same tune on, on the same album. I use the same background that I played on keyboard, and I just overdubbed my alto when I recorded alto and then tenor later on when I was playing tenor on some of the tenor tunes. And I just loved them both, and I said, people have never heard me. Well, I've done one or two albums playing alto and tenor. But I just wanted to share that because I was very happy with it. So it's a clever way to do it for sure. And I put myself on the spot playing fast. That's that's the tradition, tradition to play the tune fast. I don't think the original tempo was probably I don't know. I've only heard it at the high speed version, so I don't know if there was anything that was ever slower than that. 
Anyway, it was one of those daunting melodies that you learn when you're starting out playing jazz. We have been speaking here with Fred Lipsius, one of the original members of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. You've had so many great successes with that band. You were the great arranger on so many of their hits. I want to congratulate you for all the work that you've done with them and the gold records and the like. And I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And I just want to mention that in Blood, Sweat, and Tears, as an arranger, and speaking for the other arrangers also, we had total freedom. No one told us what we had to do. So everything that happened, my intro on spinning wheel, I didn't know that the sharp nine chord was going to, I was thinking, is this okay for rock and roll? And that's my calling card. So we had a lot of freedom. So I, I wasn't stifled. It's something to know. I can imagine. Well, it worked out perfectly. I want to thank you again for being on this podcast. We're going to listen now to that song that started off this interview. It's my song called Miles Behind from 1994 with Randy Brecker. I want to thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com. Thank you.